Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you. Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you, he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, we're going to jump into our text today. We've been going through Matthew as a church, but we're going to take a pause on Easter Sunday, and we're going to come to Ephesians, and in particular, we are looking at a prayer. And if you've ever read through the book of Ephesians before, there's two prayers. The one we're looking at today, which is in chapter 1, then there's another one in chapter 3. Ephesians is a letter written to the church. The author, Paul... Uh, is writing to them and probably more than just one church. It's to a group of churches. And I think it's so appropriate that when Rick was up here, we were praying over not just our church, but we're praying over other believers in the state. We're praying for other believers who are in Nepal. And so as we're looking at this letter, we can imagine it being handed out and around to different groups of churches that were looking to Jesus unified all together. And this prayer that we're looking at in Ephesians 1 should cause us to pause. I mean, because why do we end up praying to God? Like, even, even if maybe you haven't been in the Bible very recently, or maybe you haven't come to church very often, there are probably times in your life where you have cried out in prayer, maybe out of desperation, because when we pray, we're often praying for what is most pressing, We ask for what we need, we share our heart, we cry out for those who are most important to us. But often, we don't truly know what we need. And this is why the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And... I mean, God loves to answer prayers, and he will often answer our prayers, but often in ways we do not expect, because we're thinking in a broken way. We're thinking in in a bent way because of the way that sin has impacted our life. It's hard to see what is actually most important, what is most hopeful, what is most valuable, what is most powerful. This is why we must see the vision of this prayer and what Paul is trying to impress and cry out to God, not only for ourselves, but for our friends, our fellow believers, on behalf of the church itself. We must pay attention. We we don't want to tune out this prayer. We can't gloss over it. We must hear and we must see what God is communicating to us 
this morning. And in perfect way of introduction, we see what Paul focuses on immediately is God. So if you look at Ephesians 1.15, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Whenever you see in scripture where you've got the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got God the Father, and you've got the Holy Spirit all referenced right in the same sentence. It's trying to call us to attention. It's trying to help us understand that God is far bigger than we could ever imagine. Knowing him (laughs) is something that would take an eternity and beyond. And so as we think about this, Not only is it highlighting the bigness of God, but it's also highlighting that God is a relational being. And so Paul is highlighting this and saying, hey, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying for you with this emphasis and praying to this God, this great, amazing God, creator of the universe. So he starts with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. He's the commander. He will be the ultimate judge. He is the one in power and control. He is one with God and yet stepped into human reality to bridge the gap that came between humanity and their creator God when humanity rebelled against him. And then Paul emphasizes the father of glorious. God is glorious. And that's a word we don't maybe often use in our vocabulary, but when someone shouts out the glory of something. They are praising how majestic it is. And for God, what we see that is the whole universe, all the planets, all the stars are proclaiming his glory, all of nature itself. And any good that we can see glimpse in our world, it's constantly crying out that God is, that he exists, that he is the source of truth, life, and all reality. He is the creator, the ultimate power. And then we have the spirit of wisdom, God the spirit. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge put to proper work. When knowledge is used rightly, it is wisdom. It's truth properly used. And notice that because especially in the information age, sometimes people can speak truth, but often it's not even used in the correct way. But when there's wisdom, it's truth properly used. Jesus promised that the Spirit of God would come uh, upon his followers in John 16, 13. And he said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. The only source for true wisdom comes from the spirit of God. He is true enlightenment for the soul. So this is a big way for Paul to segue into petitioning this God on behalf of the church. And what does he start off with? He starts off with that this God would give you his spirit so that you could know him. So that you could know him. And, And this 
This seems so simple, so trite in some ways. It's something that you expect to hear in church where it's like, know God, but this knowing of God isn't just simply accumulating all these facts that we can somehow prop ourselves up with. It's knowing God on this deep relational level to the point that when you're actually getting to know God, there shouldn't be any pride at all. When you get him, it brings you to this place of humility, realizing who he is and what he's done for you. And when you know God, when you really know him, you'll find everything that this world is looking for. But the world can't deliver on it. When you know God, and this is where Paul's going to go with his prayer, you know unending hope, you know unlimited value, and you can know immeasurable power. When you know God, you can know unending hope, you can know unlimited value, and you can know immeasurable power. These claims are not only with worth our attention, they are worth our full life's pursuit. So with that, let's pray before we jump in. God in heaven, that we can worship you together under your word right now is, is a miracle. And I ask that your spirit would be at work. Please enlighten our hearts. Please awaken us. Please help us to see the truths of your scripture that are before us today, even just looking at this majestic prayer, God, I know that we could spend hours in this. We could spend days in this, soaking in who you are and what you came to do. But for the little time that we have right now, God, would you please speak to our hearts? Would you transform our lives? We pray this in your name. Amen. So first, in Paul's prayer, after he asks that they would know God through his spirit, he then asked that they would know unending hope. So in Ephesians 1.19, it says, and what, or sorry, not Ephesians 1.19, but uh, backing up to 18, it says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. You may know the hope that he has called you to. So if our hearts are first enlightened, if you think about the word enlightened, it's like when you shine a bright flashlight into the darkest corner and it reveals what is there. Paul is asking that their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know the hope of their calling. Hope is fundamental to what it means to be human. It's often the driver of our life. When we have hope, we have purpose and drive for what could be a better reality for us in the future. Hope is when you believe something so strongly that you operate as if a future promise is so sure that you will put so much energy, effort, finances on the reality that this, this hope is going to exist. So in Alaska, the easiest way to see this in play is often we're hoping that we're going to get fish at Chitna when we go down, and we have that hope so much that we'll be willing to throw in a whole bunch of equipment into our trucks, we'll drive for like six or seven hours, get down there. And the funny part is, after I talk to people who've done this, you start realizing that it would probably be um, maybe even cheaper to buy the salmon somewhere else than to go through all of this. But there's that hope that you're going to get your full limit of fish. Or maybe it's with caribou hunting where you go out and you have hope, even if you've gotten all the baddest reports in the world, you're like, I'm still going to drag my snow machine out there, and I'm still going to put all this gear in, because I have a hope 
that there is going to be caribou. Hope can be had by someone who's like a prisoner who believes that one day he will be free, and so he lives as if that reality exists. Hope is someone who's maybe working at a low-income job, but they have hope that there's a better job in the future, and they work based on that reality, hoping for that promotion. What does Paul pray? He prays that we know the hope of, his, of the calling that God has given us. Now, if you've ever heard of calling within the church, sometimes it autom- what automatically comes to mind is like, oh, that's referring to like becoming a pastor or doing something extra spiritual. But often, calling in scripture is talking about when God calls us from death into life, when he calls us from spiritual darkness into spiritual light. It's the calling that Jesus is saying as he arose from the grave, he walked through that door of the tomb into light. And metaphorically, it's, hey, come follow me. He calls us. First Peter 2.9 highlights this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the whole first chapter of Ephesians is this like one big, beautiful display of the promises that God has given us, which is the assurance of the hope we can have of a future eternal reality. When you walk through that chapter, you will see that for those who've put their faith in Jesus, they are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, adopted in Christ to be sons and daughters of God, redeemed in Christ by his blood that was shed on the cross, forgiven in Christ according to the riches of his grace, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The the calling that God bring that calling of God brings us into relationship because of what Christ did upon the cross and because of our faith in him. We are brought in relationship with that triune God that we talked about earlier. And the promise he gives us is one of eternal perfection. A call that comes with the promises. And those promises are what are, is able to take us through the suffering that we endure during this lifetime as we're still in this broken earth. We keep our eyes fixed on a future reality, and that's described in Revelations 21, 3 through 4, where it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So if there's something we can take away from this, it's to know hope, but not to lose hope. When you truly know God, like Paul starts off with the beginning of his prayer, then you can know this unending hope that he promises us. I mean, hope is the essence of our faith. We align our lives based on the evidence given to us by God with hope of these future realities and promises. We fill our whole vision of life with the pursuit of knowing God and thus knowing hope. But if we think about losing hope, losing hope comes when you put your hope in the wrong place. 
when you put your hope into something that's just not gonna last very much. And that's everything that's within this world. You can put hope in relationships. You can put hope in your wealth. For us up here, you can put hope in the peace that nature can give when you can get out of the office and, and go exploring during the summer. I mean, we live our lives sometimes during the winter like with this hope that summer is coming, but God promises us something that's even beyond what we can experience here in nature. Because eventually, this world's it's going to go away. The relationships we have here in this world are going to go away. And ultimately, the thing that leads to that is death. The death that we experience and, and the death that's going to happen to this old world. So where do we find hope? We find hope in knowing God. We find hope in the eternal life that he offers. And this is why in Philippians 3, 10 through 11, Paul, he's like crying from his own heart. And he says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is setting his whole life, his whole course, his whole existence when he was in this world was all for this end, this eternal end with Christ. The unending eternal hope that we have is certified in the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate today. Where death kills hope, Jesus brought hope to life by walking out of the tomb. So when you face hopelessness, when you leave today, when you move back into your regular life rhythms and you face the hopelessness of this world, you can face it when you have hope in Christ, knowing that you have hope that is eternal. So not only are we called to know unending hope, we are called to know unlimited value. Paul moves on and describes the next thing he's praying, that they would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is an inheritance that we have, but it's also an inheritance that we are. Now we need to think about inheritance for a moment, especially in our Alaskan slash American culture Inheritance is kind of like this added benefit. If you happen to be lucky and your, your parents, hopefully uh, their, their lives end at some point, not hopefully that their lives end, but when they end, sometimes, <laughs> you have to forgive me for that, but when, when their lives end, that we would get some sort of benefit. And sometimes this becomes some of the things that people argue over all the time is like the inheritance and the money that comes out of it. And that's because for us, it can sometimes be this added benefit. But it's not what our life is set upon. The people that Paul was writing to understood inheritance as an integral way of life. You hope for the future. Your, your life depended on the value of your inheritance. It was your security. And that's why, like, when... Uh, when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, that son was hoping, in essence, that his father would die. It's because he was hoping to get the value of what was coming because he knew it was something that he could use. So how do we, how do we understand that today? For us, it may be something like in a retirement account or an investment, something that we put a lot of hope in that we'll be able to capitalize on the future, that someday when our work comes to an end, we'll be able to enjoy our life with our family because we put this investment in ahead of time. So then what is our inheritance when it comes to Christ, when it comes to Jesus? 
his inheritance, it's unlimited. It's unlimited, and its security is immovable and eternal. Christ's inheritance is guaranteed. It doesn't run out. It keeps going. Romans 8, 16 through 18 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is such a powerful truth because not only does it name us heirs of God, but it brings us as being co-heirs or fellow heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ receives from his resurrection and ascension, we will also receive. And this is the hope that we put our sights on for the future that drives our life. The reminder of this verse is that we have a hope. We have a future that's guaranteed beyond this life. But, but notice it requires something of us as well. What's required of us is that our inheritance isn't in this earth, that, that our hope and our investments aren't here in this earth that are in temporal, but that we're investing for our life and our future reality with Christ. It requires us to see Christ as our ultimate value to the point where the sufferings of this earth are small compared to the hope that we are given. We walk through our suffering that will come, and we live differently than the rest of the world. And Paul is saying, your inheritance in Christ is well worth it. But there's another meaning with this phrase, too, and that's the inheritance that we are. When you look at the phrase, it says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? See, when Christ died and he rose again, those who would put their faith in him are his. They are owned by him in some ways. And when you read the prayer that Jesus gives in John 17 before he comes to the cross, it's this beautiful love that comes out of it, and he sees us as his own. Well, why is that important? Well, consider your life and when people value you. When either a spouse, a friend, even someone at work, when they see you as valuable and they either invest in you, they let you know about it, they spend time with you. There's this investment that's put in you. I mean, it, it's what makes you feel on cloud nine. It's this thing that like no other feeling can match when you know that you are valued and when you are loved by someone. And that's why it's so devastating when we fi find out that maybe someone doesn't value us or appreciate who we are. That can be so crushing. It can lead even into despair. And it can get even worse when it comes to the point of our own self-deprecation, when it comes to that point where we don't even value ourselves. But then when our faith is in Christ, we find this truth that what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Because in Christ, we have eternal significance. We have eternal value. That even if we lose the, the temporary values that this world can give us, not that those don't hurt, not that those can't be frustrating, but if we're secure in Christ, we can weather the storm. It doesn't matter how many likes we get on our social media 
or what our boss happens to say, or those type of things, we can still move forward because we know we are eternally valued again. And how, how do we understand that? How do we know this? Well, that, that's where it comes back to knowing God, where Paul started off this whole letter. That we know him and that we don't give up on knowing him. And so Paul prays this, that they would know the unlimited value of your inheritance. And we shouldn't find our value in something less. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't value something less either. We tend to value the things of the world because it's what's right in front of us. We tend to find our value from others because, again, it's the thing that's in our immediate reality. But that's where it comes back to our hope being what we know. Know the hope that he's given us, that we have that future in our sights. And the other thing we see with this, too, is this world will eventually pass away and a new world will come. And this matches what Christ did. He died, he put to death our sin, he became poor for our sakes, he became unvalued for our sakes so that in his resurrection we could find that unlimited value in him as a co-heir and we could be valued forever. The last thing that Paul prays for is that the church would know the immeasurable power. Looking at verse 19 it says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's like Paul was getting warmed up in this prayer for this last piece as he highlights the power that is toward us who believe. It's the closing part of his prayer over the church. So we have hope that's eternal. We have an inheritance that's imperishable. And then we have a power that is immeasurable. Well, what is power? Power is just simply the ability to affect and control things. I mean, we see this all over the place. And especially we see it is when power is used for evil purposes. We hate power when it is used by corrupt people and authorities in our life because it has that negative influence. It forces us into things that we don't want. And that's why there's that phrase tossed about that says absolute power corrupts absolutely. And part, part of the reason for that is because humanity can't handle absolute power. So often power is equaled with destruction. It's how we measure atomic bombs and other things and their destructive power and how it changes and influences and impacts things. But then there's another power that's also referred to this spiritual power. Take example for Satan. Satan becomes a dark power in our lives because of the sin in this world. Satan, who was the angel Lucifer, sought to take cosmic control and it turned him into a lesser spiritual despot. His hope is to influence and control us and keep us from the hope and inheritance promised by God. Satan is the product of rebellion, sin, and pride. And so when we act similarly in our own rebellion, sin, and pride, we act by his example. And why is that? It's because Satan and humans, we can't be God. 
We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the goodness. Even the most well-intentioned rulers end up using power wrongly. It's because we're limited. And, And no matter how powerful a person becomes, all of us, again, end in the same place. We die. Human power at some point on this earth will come to an end. Whatever ruler you see on the news, whatever president, whatever whoever is there, or ourselves, eventually it's going to come to an end. But in Jesus, but in Jesus, how amazing is it that God would come, humble himself in the form of a human as Jesus Christ to free us from our own mess, to save us from our own powerlessness in Jesus There is a power not corrupt, but gloriously good. It is a power that reverses the the end to our power. Our our power goes away into the grave at death. Jesus' power was proved by the greatness of his resurrection. Thomas Goodwin said, his resurrection has the power of all resurrections contracted in it. So that when Jesus resurrected from the grave, he paved the pathway for all those who would put their faith in him to be drawn into him. It's the kind of power that overcomes every power arrayed against us. Every power that's arrayed against us. If you've ever heard this phrase before that when Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered Satan, sin, and death, think about it. When Jesus rose again, his power came against sin in our life because we can be forgiven. When Jesus rose from the dead, his power came against Satan's influence in our life because he's no longer the reigning power Jesus is. When Jesus rose from the dead, his power came against death itself. And what's so amazing is that we get to experience a present spiritual resurrection when we put our faith in him. He gives us new desires. He leads us in a new pathway. We live life differently And that's just a foretaste of the physical resurrection that we are promised, that eternal reality that we have hope in, where our eternal security and value is. But as Paul ends this, as he ends it in the prayer, talking about this immeasurable power, look at how he focuses then on the church in verse 22. It says, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As you may be wondering, man, I put my faith in Jesus. Why can't I leave this life? Leave this life where we experience this sorrow, this grief, this pressure, all these things that can build up. When we experience that, why does God have us here? And we see it through the church itself. The church is described as his body, that we represent God and fill the earth with his presence, with his glory. When the church, when the followers of Jesus see their king, their Lord, their wisdom in full display, then the church is that earth-shattering power for good. We take the same power that resurrected Jesus, that resurrected us in our spirit, and we bring that into our city, into our neighbor's lives, into those who we come into contact with that God brings us to. The church spreads out bringing that amazing resurrection power. 
Because the power of the resurrection isn't just like this one-time transaction where God gives you the thumbs up and then he pieces out and is like, yeah, you can live your life the way you want to. No, the resurrection power is a relational power that God uses our entire lives until we enter into eternity with him. And he's given us that ability, that power is toward us for day-to-day living. And this is where... As we look at this prayer, the question is, going right back to the beginning, do you know God? Do you know him? More than just words that are on a page, do you understand the heart of the God who came to save you out of your brokenness, who came to give you that hope, who came to give you that value and to have that power towards you for resurrection? Do you really know him? Because too many people come into church use it as a checkbox for their everyday life and not actually come to know God, which means that their security is not eternal and it's not in him. And so the first thing from this today is if you're wanting to know what real hope is, what real value is, what the immeasurable power of God is, start going after him like crazy. Go to this word seeking him, not because it's something good you should do with your time to be a good person, but because you need to know God. Cry out to him in prayer. Seek him with your whole heart and don't stop no matter what. And there's an application then for us who've put our faith in Jesus, and that is don't stop knowing God. Man, we can go through all sorts of things. Tragedy will hit us out of right field, or we will get our eyes off of Jesus and and look back to the world, wanting to live in that, putting our hope in it, and it's not going to satisfy us. Don't settle for less. Keep hoping in Jesus. Keep reminding yourself of your internal inheritance in him. Trust the power that's towards you, that is resurrecting you. A.W. Tozer said this, How tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Jesus Christ, a term, incidentally, which is not found in the Bible. And we are not expected, therefore, to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of a spurious logic which insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. If that happens to be you today, where you've put your faith in Jesus and you found yourself way off in right field and there's no longer that craving, there's no longer that seeking, start just by simply getting on your knees in a prayer. Pray this prayer that Paul prayed for the churches. Start with your own heart and say, God, I need to know you. I need to have that my heart stirred up again because I'm not... I'm looking to other places for hope. I'm looking to other places for value. I'm looking for other places for power, and it's just not enough. So pray this over your own heart. Not just once, but constantly. Run after the Savior. And the other thing I would encourage is pray this prayer for others. If you're looking for like, you're like, man, I don't know how to pray for people. You can start here, and you'll know you're in the right direction for them. Be praying that man, can they just know God a little bit more? Can they just know him? Because that's where they're going to find their hope. Pray that they would find hope in Jesus, hope in the calling that he's given them. Pray that they would find value in him and not value in other things. Pray that they would 
see the power, know the power that is towards them because Christ resurrected from the grave. So we're going to move to a time in communion. We run to the power of the cross and of the empty tomb. And actually, I was thinking about this. We take communion every week. And I was like, well, we're celebrating that Jesus rose from the dead. And communion is specifically focused that he died on the cross and his blood was shed. And I was like, it seems a little weird. But then as I thought about it, in this passage, we remember that Jesus became hopeless for us on the cross. We remember that he became poor and of no value on the cross. That he became powerless on the cross for us, that he would welcome the wrath of God upon him. And when we remember that, it makes resurrection so much sweeter. When we recognize what he did so that when we go to the table today, we can come celebrating and thanking him and praising him that thank you, Jesus, that you rose again and opened up the pathway so that we don't have to be hopeless. We can know hope. So that we don't have to have no value, but we have eternal value. And so that we don't have to be powerless, but that we can have his power toward us who believe. So I'm going to pray, and then I would encourage you during this first song that we play, just sit in contemplation of this prayer and maybe pray this over your own heart. And then once we're done with the first song, I'd encourage uh, parents that you go pick up your kids uh, so that not only that they get to worship with us, but those who have been teaching them the word can also worship with us as well. Let's pray. God in heaven, we just thank you that thousands of years ago, your spirit worked through Paul, that you worked through him to pen this powerful prayer that it reminds us of the essence and what's most important. Jesus, I just pray that as we leave this place that we'd know the hope, the value, and the power that can be had in knowing you, in knowing you, Jesus, and your resurrection and the life that it gives. I just pray over us as a church as we move into this week that wherever hopelessness has its hands around our neck and wherever we are putting our misplaced values, wherever we're looking for power that's just not like yours, I just pray that you would gently lift our eyes up back to you and lead us to you. And if there's anyone here, Jesus, who your Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of their heart, God, I pray they won't refuse. They put their faith in you today and find salvation and find resurrection for their soul. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.